Calls for transformation are popping up everywhere these days, but transformations aren't easy or quick fixes. Within these calls, there seems to be a hunger, a hunger to slow down, to spend time healing, and to feel more connected to ourselves, to each other, and to the ecosystems we are part of. But how does that happen? And can we create that kind of healing at scales large enough that it contributes to the kinds of transformations that could create a different kind of future? My name is Michelle Lee Moore, and in this episode, we will talk to two experts on what it takes to step away from our status quo and established modes of thinking. Dr. Vanessa Andriotti is an expert on race, inequality, and education, and focuses on collective processes for both healing and rethinking how we create alternative futures. And Dr. Per Espenstoknes is a psychologist and an expert on scenarios and sustainable economics. Together, we will unravel some of the obstacles that exist for transformation to really happen. Welcome to Rethink Talks. Vanessa and Per Espen, thank you for joining us today from quite different parts of the world. Vanessa from the unceded territories of the Musqueam Nation, also known as Vancouver, Canada today. And Per Espen from Oslo, Norway. Welcome to both of you. Hello. Great being with you, Michelle. Honored to be here. Let me start off with a question for both of you. Why is it that change can be so contentious, so difficult? Just to start off on a psychologist's note, um, we know very well there is this thing called um, status quo bias. Um, humans prefer what we have, what we know, to what we don't have, but might have, uh, but it's still in the in the blue. So, the minute you start, the minute you start to threaten somebody about taking away what they have, whether that is cars or plane rides or endless access to beef or whatever then from a psychology point of view it's not just expectation there you can 100 percent predict there will be resistance to change so as a psychotherapist i've been trained in dealing with the resistance to change and um, rather than provocating it and beating it down or overcoming it you have to befriend it so try to understand this resistance um, what's the what does it mean to the person that you want to help? Uh, why is it so important for, for these people to keep on to um, what they're used to? So status quo bias, it's always there. It, it's always uh, the first thing you meet uh, if you want to work with change. I think what comes to mind when I think about your question is the scales and the complexities involved in this. because. Resistance for one generation, for example, will mean the change that another generation wants to, um, to see happening. So the ability to see this in, in, in multiple perspectives and, and historically where this change uh, is coming from, where it's at, where it's going, who's resisting it, uh, who's pushing for it, what the stakes are, uh, is something that... Um, that maybe we haven't had to develop in the last um, 70 years. Let's think about mm -hmm. the period after the war and the, the bubble of prosperity that uh, we were living in. And, but mm -hmm. that maybe technology is helping younger people develop these things and need these things and sometimes demand 
that we see the world with more complexity and that, for example, when we think about the status, uh, the, the status that are being colonial status, uh, statuses, um, the, the, the statuses that are being brought down, it's because young people can see what is channeled through the statues from the past into the future and want to interrupt that, that they're not focused on legacy in the same ways, right? That other generations have been. Um, granted, there's not much generosity in relation to the other generations, I have to say. So it's, I'm not trying to romanticize young people, but there are differences that I think are important in how people resist to change um, in, in approach change. There's also this thing about the motivation for change. Yeah. And yeah. um, I think a lot of climate and science communication goes wrong already there. Uh, uh, because both in climate and economics, uh, they typically deal with very abstract concepts. Uh, uh, so, you know, science comes isn't very strong on imagination. It's rather quite techy, nerdy, mm -hmm. huge numbers. We speak about significance levels and CO2 concentrations and statistics. Even when they try to come up with something positive, like you know, how, how are we to describe what we want to, what we long for? And then they say something like low carbon society <laughs> or net zero or <laughs> negative emissions. <laughs> and, you know, these words don't signify significate anything you long for. You also talked about this thing about transformation, mm. a point earlier. What, what is this thing about transformation? I think it is a kind, it's a Western conceptual word that speaks about a deep longing. We don't know exactly what it is, but if we maybe um, go into more, shall we say, wisdom traditions, I would like maybe to redefine transformation as an invitation for our society to dream. And uh, my background is in Jungian psychology, Carl Gustav Jung, and he went uh, in the early 20s to Africa. And one of the lessons he learned from the indigenous traditions of, of Africa was that sometimes you have a, a um, well, oftentimes you, when you dream at night, um, if these are small dreams. You're, you're going somewhere, you're missing the train or you're missing somebody or something happens. But then from time to time, somebody has a dream that feels much more profound. Um, so they, they distinguish between small dreams and big dreams. Um, the big dream is not just individual. You have a, 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 a duty to share that with the community. So you need to tell that dream or that story to the larger community because this is maybe then the land or the earth or the spirit, whatever, how you call it, speaking through you. And it's belonging to the collective. And for me, I think all this focus, all this speech about transformation, politicians are speaking about transformation, environmentalists are speaking about transformation, scientists, transformation, transformation. Uh, they don't know exactly how to speak about a dream when you're in a policy or scientific discourse. Um, so that's why the word comes up. So I think we're, we're longing for that dream and maybe uh, our Earth as well uh, feels that it's time now to send these two-legged uh, new dreams. Uh, so <laughs> this deeper movement can happen. Um, so we, we want to move away from those small dreams and share those larger dreams. At least that's how I would like to, to imagine uh, the word, reimagine the word transformation. I think there is a connection of small dreams in what we have called the broken compass. So something that is taking us more towards consumption than it is taking us towards 
sobriety, maturity, discernment, and accountability towards that elder mountain where we are accountable to everything and everyone and that people actually, like that there is a, a path towards that eldership. So I think that uh, dream, yes, for sure, we need to dream the collective dreams. We need to dream the dreams that uh, the earth is, is dreaming through us. Uh, but they get confused with in, with personal dreams very often. They do, and yeah. It's very difficult. If people are wanting to do that, it's very difficult to say to them, oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> this is not, this, is, this also happens in communities, communities of vision, that indigenous communities that do, um, that, that have these practices of seeing, of dreaming collectively with plant medicines mm. and without plant medicines too. When they have these traditions, there's also a teaching about how to interpret where these dreams are coming from too. Yeah, this is where the elders come in, right? The That's elders. where the elders come in. And what happens in the West, generally, when we have psychedelic communities, for example, is that there's no elders or the elders have learned themselves how to do this. But some of these teachings about accountability, responsibility uh, are lost in this. It becomes very individual. It, it becomes this thing about individual self-realization. And these communities have a okay. very different idea of what, what needs to happen collectively for us to, to break this individualization that we have that is related to, to this notion of achievement, to this notion of the hero, oh, a specific notion of belonging too, mm -hmm. right? The hero back the hero. there. So how do how to deconstruct that in at the same time that you're giving the art is giving this elation thing that is necessary. Without this, we can't do anything especially if we're going to deal with hard, difficult things, right? You have to have both as you chip in to this, to this inquiry of, of, of who we are basically, right? In that sense, who, who in, in, in what we are in relation to everything else. I, I work with a lot of people who want to be entangled with the trees, the beauty, right? The trees, the flowers, the sun, the moon. But when we present them that they, to them that they are also entangled with, the shit, <laughs> like, the violence, the guns, the desire to have more, the greed, the exploitation that is that makes it possible for other people to have stuff. So when you when they when you present that them with that form of entanglement, they they tend to to push back. And, and I think there is a fragility, a lack of resiliency that maybe before the war had to be there as a matter of survival. And then because of the bubble of prosperity, we kind of exiled it and said, well, we need, don't need that because there's yeah. a notion of progress and civilization that will take us to a better place, but it can't. Right. Yeah, and then, then you may try to scare people away because the progress is going in the wrong way. So you get, mm -hmm. then you get into the doomism and suddenly you have the, mm -hmm. the, the, the cli-fi, the climate fiction where everything is mm -hmm. uh, entering a kind of dead and deadening world and it's the end of the time frames. So, um, but then again, if you try to scare people into this, uh, you get the opposite of entanglement or enchantment. You get a mm -hmm. numbing and a closing down. And this is where I think imagination mm -hmm. has this um, huge potential. Mm -hmm. uh, so unfortunately, I mean, scientists as persons, when they do their hypothesis and they sit with their, 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 their the fungi or the, the, the salmon, then they have this imagination 
in how they approach, but when you communicate it, then uh, it's often dead and deadening, and you lose the enchantment and the entanglement of, of being with that river, being with that salmon, being with that uh, march, or whatever you're kind of falling in love with as a scientist. I know both of you, I mean, we're, we're talking about these, these different narratives, and I know both of you have engaged with different methods, different artistic approaches, storytelling. Tell us a little bit more about why you've been drawn to those approaches, why you think those are important to this this work. When we work with Indigenous people, the, the, the artists I work with say that art is not something that your human intellect does. It comes from the land. It's the land dreaming through you. The whole metabolism that is the earth is going to tell you where to go. Part of my work has been to say, this is possible. It's a form of well-being that we haven't been uh, conditioned to imagine. A lot of people want the connection without the accountability. In indigenous knowledge, this is not possible. Connection means accountability. It means you, you are entangled and accountable to what happened to everybody and to your ancestors, who are not those who came before, but those yet to come, because the notion of time is not linear. I think the work on arts is not so much about making art products as reawakening a kind of sensibility or an aesthetic sense or coming to your senses, really. Um, so uh, science is, very, again, very strong on concepts, on analytics, on numbers, but um, you're kind of, you've been taught and you've been encouraged to leave out what you're personally sensing and your body. Your body doesn't really belong uh, inside science. And I think both scientists and society would benefit if we allowed more of the senses in and the aesthetic uh, sensibility. I think also here we should involve artists uh, and particularly I've enjoyed some of the wonderful storytellers that avoid the, the doom stories, but still manage to speak about the relationship to the land in a very aesthetic way. So th those were kind of associations I made when you asked me, Michelle, about this, how, I, how we work with the arts. And I do that, unfortunately, split. So sometimes I'm more in an artistic community, and then we can make music, uh, rituals, poetry together. And other times I'm more in a scientific, and then I have to adapt those methods because most scientists, rational white men, aren't too comfortable with moving their bodies or making poetry together. They feel, they feel it's kind of strange. My use of art has been for a different purpose, which I think is interesting and, and which will create a conflict because the communities that I'm working with, indigenous communities, black communities, racialized communities, what they what they need is a space, a container to be in contact with the pain of what happened and what they're carrying. And it's also a container where more people can be part of this container. We can hold all this pain together. But there is a pattern of using art just to feel good and to look good, art that is that gives you elation. But the kind of art I've been working at is art that actually helps to develop the stamina to deal with things that are going to turn your stomach about yourself and your mm. ancestors and what's happening in the world. That is, is going to be very different from, from art for elation, art for connection. So we need both. I don't think we can do the what I call the shit composting without a party. I need We, mm. we need joy. We need, we need lightness, we need humor, we need all of that. But 
the the fear of doomism of a lot of people on the other side prevents them from seeing what's difficult, what can lead to for in their minds to doomism, but then it prevents other communities from processing the pain that they are carrying, but it is actually collective. We need to be able to release this pain. And this has yeah. never happened if one group is looking for away from doomism only for what's good and feels good and looks good. And another group is saying, we actually need to stop this and look at what's real. And yeah. the, the real is not beautiful. The yeah. real is actually a lot of wrongs. How do you think that those relationships, that connectedness, that deep intertwinedness between humans and nature, how does that shape what's actually possible for transformations? I think it's everything. <laughs> unless we feel it, uh, and if, unless it's visceral, we're, whenever responsibility and accountability are just intellectual choices, like me either trying to signal virtue or to do something that is actually convergent with what I want to do anyway in my, with my, in my, my self-interest, right? When, when responsibility is like that, it never works. But when it's visceral, you will go against your self-interest to be able to do the right thing, right? We need a lot of people feeling that. That the right thing might not be the, the dream that I have of prosperity. It might be something very different. But that's the right thing to do for me, for those to have come before me and now I'm learning their mistakes for the future generation. This is the thing for the, for the plants, for the other animals, for the sea. When we feel that, we will be able to make different decisions that might not um, be what we would have chosen if we just go for the ones, right? This is what mm. needs to happen. And that effect may go in that direction, but it happens in your guts. And indigenous people say it is to do actually to your, like physically with your guts. So in, in this understanding, our thoughts are not just abstract things. They are physiological things that happen in your body, right? And mm. when they take things like, uh, the ayahuasca or mescaline or psilocybin, they are creating a, need, a different form of biome and neurobiology that is operating differently from other people, right? So I'm interested in what kind of thing do they do to keep that connection so strong that we have forgotten or been forbidden to do within the institution, institutionalized mm -hmm. life that we have so far? And what yeah. can we learn? from these things to create a different possibility for being together. Mm. So um, I think also I'd like to return to my original discipline here, the one of psychology, uh, because in the Western tradition, um, we have this idea of the individual as separate. So it is me, the I, the self, um, which is self-contained, and I have my willpower, I have my resources, I have my thoughts, uh, which are all in the head, so to speak. And particularly neuropsychology has this bias that everything happens inside your brain. Uh, there's nothing really of, of aliveness and consciousness and intentionality in the world itself. It's it, If you imagine that... Um, a spring is a stream is, is, is having a happy sound or uh, that you're um, enjoying uh, the air as vibrantly alive, then it's all just neurons firing inside your brain. 
And, and, and this psychology, this individualistic modern psychology, I think, have to die. I mean, it, it, it's so it's so 1900s. <laughs> so, so I, uh, that's why I've been engaging in eco psychology for a long time. And in eco psychology, we try to understand the self uh, not with beginning with the neurons, but beginning with the relationship of the body to the land or the body to the buildings or the body to the ground and body to the air and the water. So the minute you stop thinking about yourself as kind of encased inside the brain, but something that participates and flows and streams um, in the air, then something happens, something deep happens. I think that's the kind of healing of the Western um, separatism, the, the, the dualism that we have been. And, and suddenly you can feel the air alive. I wrote quite a bit about that in my previous book, this, uh, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming. Um, how if we can imagine that uh, we are the air speaking, not uh, the air as a dead um, bag of oxygen and nitrogen uh, just uh, passively hanging around, but uh, the air being something that holds me, nourishes me and makes even this conversation possible. Um, similar with water. Uh, and I really liked how the keystone uh, protectors, the, the, the water protectors fighting keystone um, pipeline made that into something, how they managed to communicate that water is alive and it really needs us to protect. And if the water goes sick, we go sick. And if we go sick and we have, the water will suffer. And similarly, I've been quite a bit in, in Ecuador recently and Peru with, a, with the forest guardians, the, the first nations there. And how the forest is not uh, a kind of ecosystem out there which you can map onto some diagram but it is a living uh, entity that you can relate to and you feel it when you walk through it with your body and then my latest book now has been the, the, the challenge how can we translate this into economics is that possible or does everything die the minute economists come in and, and what I'm trying there in my latest book called Tomorrow's Economy is a shift from this enlightenment economics where there is the, the rational singular actor which is in competition against everybody else towards an enlivenment economics. From enlightenment to enlivenment economics. And that goes back to this. How can we as economic actors participate in a mutually enlivening way. So when we make products, when we make services, when we serve food, it's enlivening both for the customer but also for um, nature or uh, the land, uh, the ecosystem, uh, the home that we are we're part of. How can we enliven our home through economics rather than um, using the world as a dead resource for the betterment of the singular rational actor. Uh, and hopefully um, that way of thinking in economics will eventually spread, but uh, it, it takes a while. So that's why I wrote this book, Tomorrow's Economy, Towards a Healthy Growth. And I think the way it relates, my book is called Hospice Modernity, which is apparently going in a very different direction, but actually there is a connection. So I think the, the idea of enlivenment is absolutely important. Uh, I think different communities will look at enlivenment very differently from a lot of the, the mainstream population in, in Western countries. There will be other ideas of what enlivenment looks like. And there's a lot to be learned from that. And we need 
we need to learn from that. But what I think is important is that it, for a lot of these communities, this enlivenment happens after a clearing, a clearing of all the trauma and everything that happened. This cannot be skipped. Yeah. That needs to happen. And we're not, we're running away from it all the time. And then it's coming back in very violent ways sometimes and without any generosity, right? So how do we prepare the, the, this dominant population to receive containers where we can look at this painful and difficult things, where we, we have the stamina and the resilience to stay with the trouble? And to, but in, in the end, how do we also find the stamina to do that? Because for that already, we need vitality, we need patience, serenity, we need maturity already to do it. So how do we invite everybody for a space of maturity that's going to be beautiful and is going to be difficult? And we're going to get through this together. We will, because that's our only, our only possibility for survival. That's if we have to have hope in something, and if this hope is not just naive or desperate, and if we're not just worried about doomism, we, we need to walk that tightrope with humor, with humility, with honesty, with hyper self-reflexivity. We need to walk that tightrope so that uh, we can start to exist differently, both with the beauty of it and with the pain of it, because it has mm. been painful and we need to deal with that. If we turn our back to that pain, it becomes something, it becomes terror. And yeah. it's gonna terrorize all of us at the same time. We are, it's already doing that, right? So mm. how do we figure out a way to have both at the same time, the capacity to deal with pain and the capacity to feel this deep loving connection with everything? And everyone. Yeah. I think the key there is the artistic work or mm -hmm. artistic containers, because pain Absolutely. as itself, if if I'm a psychotherapist and then a patient comes in with a deep, deep pain or a, a group comes in that carries that pain and they're going to just talk, 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 talk about it, they will end up kind of projecting it back and forth mm -hmm. and there will be no deep third, uh, no, not a, no um, soulful um terrible Nasty. yeah that, that can hold that pain and that's the great thing of art that it can really carry that pain in a way that doesn't throw it in the face of somebody else or you have to act it out in anger or just talk through it in, in narrow concepts but it, it gives the body an access to a mode of expression that really carries the depth of it um, but of course it's not quick I, I've, I have a background as a psychotherapist and, and sitting through those deep processes of pain without any judgment and without any impatience it requires a lot of us as well as helpers as facilitators we have to let go of this heroic fantasy that we will fix this and we're in a hurry no this has to, to go in soul time so to speak the in, psyche in has to find it yeah. The indigenous people know that. So they have this collective rituals that they don't call art. But when you ask them about what art is, it is an important concept from the West too. So with the communities I work with, the rituals are their art and it's collective art. And in this art, exactly. your body is changed and you are relieved mm. of things, emptied of things. There's, there's, if you have, imagine a society or societies that have this practice, they have much more resiliency than we mm. do. They have much more stamina because they know it's going to go, right? But if you think that individually you're going to accumulate everything and then have to go to talk therapy and talk, 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 to the end of your life about this. It just, yeah. it, it doesn't like, work like that. We need catharsis. 
I mean, there's so much here to reflect on. I think <clears throat> one of the things you're reminding me of is this, this, this cleaning, this healing, this setting of intentions. The this these are all the the maturing, the growing up, the showing up differently. These are all verbs, and it's and it reminds us that it's it's work and it's hard work, but it's it's not an end point. It is, it's a, you know, it is a verb. It's a, a part of being. And I think that's a, and I also really love how you're reminding us how that there is this healing of what has been problematic from the past, what has, what has hurt, what has created trauma, what has violated, but also there's a healing that needs to happen of what we're letting go of what we're dis- so that it's not just a yeah what did you I forget how you described it not a literally setting it on fire but shaking it and even these words we use in innovation and transformation disruption and they're destructive um and so reminding us that it's that we're it's not just about being careful as we find different kinds of futures but it's it's taking care of what we're letting go that isn't part of that alternative future. So I'm really, really appreciating what you're sharing there. My final question to you both um, on all of that, that is, I mean, it, already for me, this is giving me a lot, a lot of hope. But I'm wondering what gives, what gives you the hope, the stamina, the endurance to keep, to keep doing this hard work and, and finding these, helping others find their way towards alternative futures? Um, where where is it coming from, and how can it not be desperate hope or desperate hopelessness? How does how is this new? It's hoping in the weaving in the present. It's not hoping in a projection of the future. It's actually seeing things uh, that are not articulable happening. It's the synchronies. It's uh, understand, not understanding, but feeling how these communities relate to each other, to the land and, and, and to us when we establish the kinship and relationship um, in those contexts. So there's something that there's, there, there are exiled capacities. We can do more. We can waken up things inside our, um, our psyche and our neurobiology that will get us through. This gives me, this makes me excited. This gives me hope, this, and, and, and that different generations are finding it. Like it, it, the more we get, the, the more the waters rise, the more people become interested in figuring out what they don't know. And there are pathways out there um, to, to, to this other form of well-being. And uh, when people find it, then they don't want to keep it to themselves. They wanna, they wanna share it. So yeah, that, Something is happening. It's coming from the land. It's coming from the plants. It's coming from, it, there's help <laughs> coming. Mm. And some of us Excellent. are waking up to letting it do its work. When you bring up this issue of hope, uh, Michelle, it's, um, it's a big thing. I mean, um, um, it's hope for a better future. Um, it's deeply ingrained, particularly in Western society and goes back to Christianity in terms of going to heaven. Everything will be okay uh, you, if you just you know, pray to the right God. Uh, he will cleanse you and, and you'll get to the new, new Jerusalem, the new heaven. Um, and I think it's a constant um, temptation for 
us to, to fall into that trap of optimistic hope that if we do only do the right thing, everything will go well. And what it well means is really some kind of light, bright idea I have of where, how things should be. Um, so in, in, in my book on, on, on when um, what we think about when we try not to think about global warming, the final chapter there, I try to focus on letting go of this addiction to an optimistic hope. Um, I think it really sets you up um, either to kind of like a Pollyanna hope, somebody will come up with a magical technology that will fix it for us, or it will we will succeed because we are again, we're strong, we are heroes, we'll fight and we'll change it because we are capable. Yes, we can, we can do it. Uh, rather, the opposite of optimistic hope is maybe a sceptical hope, um, something more in line with the Stoics. Um, and also, I like uh, what Gary Snyder, an American poet, says, uh, you know, hope is really a matter of character and style. So what you want is to be grounded in your values, in your land and your relations. Uh, and then you do what is necessary. Uh, you don't do it because you're going to heaven. You don't do it because you're saving the world. Or you don't do it because you're, you're winning somehow. But you do it because it is the right thing to do. When I breathe and I, I'm a present in my my network of relations, then there is a certain joy of simply doing it without being certain that uh, I'm going to win or this is going to the right way or I'm being saved. But taking one step, doing this right now, that feels good. Creating this here, having this talk right now with you, that gives me this sense of who I am and why um, I'm here. I don't need to, to imagine a new dawn, a, a brighter future. I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing this now, and that's, that's deeply meaningful. And that's the sense of hope we have, a grounded, skeptic hope. I don't know how the world is going to go, but I'm all in. I, I really appreciate what you, you're both sharing here. And I think for the people listening, these ideas are not just, as, as you have mentioned before, these aren't just abstract. These are, but, but for others who haven't experienced this yet or, or maybe haven't had enough space and time or the elders to, to lead them through this, this reconnecting with this relationship, these relationships that you're describing, I just wanted to mm -hmm. give a little plug. Both of you have done a lot of work in creating different kinds of guides, creating um, cards for difficult conversations, for starting to think about these, and they're both available on your website. So we'll be providing links to those um, because I think there are also there are uh, tools for how we start uh, supporting each other in these kind of collective processes. So I just wanted to end there. I want to thank both of you for joining me today in what has been a far-ranging and very inspiring conversation. I've learned a lot. So thank you very much. Thanks, thank Michelle. You. You've listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth, and don't forget to subscribe.